Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's a real privilege to speak with Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Beth is the author of the recently released The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. That's now available through Brazos Press. Uh, Dr. Barr is an associate professor of history and associate dean of the graduate school at Baylor University. Her academic specialties include European women, medieval and early modern England, and church history. She's previously served as president of the Texas Medieval Association and the Conference on Faith and History. She's a pastor's wife and mother of two and lives in Waco, Texas. This is a really exciting interview, and uh, Beth and I get into issues of patriarchy, uh, complementarianism, some of the arguments for egalitarianism, and then, and then just uh, the, uh, the relationships between the sexes within the church and within the culture. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Beth. It's so great to have you today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you have. We're going to talk about your book, uh, "Making of Biblical Womanhood: How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth." And can you just give a little backstory? I mean, a lot of your book, you have your personal narrative, but could you just talk about your spiritual journey up to the, that led you to to uh, to write this right. uh, this book? Yeah. So um, I did not ever intend to write this book. I, it was really an accidental book. If I, I don't. Yes. I really never intended to write it. Um, so, but the book encompasses my life yeah. uh, from very early on until where I am now. And it tells the story of how I grew up in a world that considered women subordinate roles to really be part of the gospel. And now I'm looking back on that, I can see the evolution of that. Um, I can see how I you know, grew up right when this was starting to be intertwined with the gospel and that it really came to its, um, you know, really matured in the early 2000s. Um, and then now I hope, I pray that it's starting to unravel. And I'm kind of in that part where it's starting to unravel. And so I, this book was um, born in probably desperation on my part. That's really the best way to explain it. And this sort of moment that I had in um, 2016, where I suddenly realized that all of these things that these churches, you know, complementarianism was growing dramatically um, in the 2000s. And, um, and, and in my area of the world, in Waco, Texas, um, we have like over 400 churches in the uh -huh. Waco area. I can count on my hands how many of them are supportive of women in ministry. I mean, it's really pretty horrific. Um, and so this, I, uh, you know, it was this moment where I was like, I know all of this stuff. Scholars have deconstructed arguments that support complementarianism. And this is standard stuff, you know, that academics know, that we all know, but nobody in the church knows it. Yeah. And so when the opportunity presented itself to me, when somebody came to me and said, have you thought about writing a book? I suddenly kind of like a light bulb went on and I was like, I'm going to try this. I'm, I'm going to kind of give a last ditch effort and see if I, if people will listen. So that's really what the, the book was born in. I mean, really it was a moment of desperation. Um, and I'm really pleased how well it seems to be working. 
<laughs> That's really good. So, and, and and you yeah. grew up, you grew up in the church, uh, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. a, like what, what was your, what was the age where you've like considered that I'm, I'm all in, oh. I'm a fully, you know, I surrender my yeah. life. Yes. Yeah. No, I was, I was young. I mean, I grew up, I do not remember not knowing about Jesus. Oh, that's I do wonderful. not remember not knowing about Jesus. My whole family, um, it was very, uh, so, you know, it's one of those things I, I be officially um, surrendered to Christ and was baptized um, in my early, early teens. Um, so I was around 13 and so still very young. Um, and I had a lot of maturing to do. But I have never, I have never questioned my faith since that time. Uh, I even throughout all that I've seen and throughout the whole process of this book and everything that led up to this book, I never questioned God. I knew the problem wasn't God. I knew the problem was people. Yeah. And I'm, and I think part of that was because I have a family that has such deep and strong faith. And um, and also as a medieval scholar, I see the deep faith of Christians before me. And so I was always able to separate the problem with the church from God. And I think that was really helpful to me um, because my, my faith never wavered. And what, what is it that drew you to say when you, when you decided to be a historian, what, what drew you to the medieval period? Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So um, I actually started off as a classical, um, in, with interest in the classical world. Um, so I'm a classics minor at Baylor, um, and I was very, very interested in the Greco-Roman world and in ancient history. Um, but as I started thinking about graduate school and in my senior year at Baylor, I realized that when you start, in fact, I was writing a paper on women in the ancient world. And I was like, there are so few sources out here. If I really wanna do women's history well in the ancient world, I've gotta become an archeologist, which was appealing. Um, but at the same time, I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, I want to do women and religion and I'm really interested in Christian history. Mm -hmm. Um, and the medieval world just really made a lot more sense because there are so many more sources as compared to the ancient world, but yet it still allows you to dabble in ancient history and, uh, and medieval history has always been very attractive to me. So it was a very kind of easy glide. Um, to and I actually started off as an early medieval historian mm -hmm. and gravitated towards the central and late Middle Ages. And of course, now I'm a very late medieval historian. So I've kind of run the whole gamut um, of medieval history from its very beginning to the very end. Yeah, and, and when you look at your the the, the book that you have written, and, and I had a chance, I had to read it really fast this week, but I did I was able to read the the whole <laughs> the whole book. I, I just got it like two days ago, so I I was cranking on this this, but I I, I absolutely you were using your academic skills there. Yeah, well, I, well, absolutely. I know. I always tell you like, yeah, I read your book really fast, and, and but I actually it's like that's not an insult, but I did I did read it. I did, I wanted to make oh. sure I knew it was in there, but you know, and 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 it's done super well because. You've done the the thing that I know that's not easy just as an academic. It's you know it's so easy we can get rewarded for writing sentences that last an entire page that have yeah. you know you know and stuff. But you wrote a book that's accessible. Um, I love the fact that it's kind of got a memoir feel to it that because you, you've woven in your own narrative and you talk about right. some of the issues that you and your husband faced and you personally share some painful things about that. So you have this memoir piece and then you have on top of that you do some biblical study stuff. You do your historical um, material 
material. You have some ref, uh, societal, societal reflections, you even talk about Bible translation in this. So you, you put together this wonderful resource and it's only about 200 pages. Uh, yeah. So, so obviously that opens you up to some criticism because you could have always said more and the very yeah. fact that you've chosen language that's easy to read, um, you know, means that you sometimes you leave some things left unsaid, but what, what is your sense of, um, are you happy with the, with the, with the way the book came out? Is there anything that you would add if you right. could do it again? I'm just curious how you'd respond to that, even the genre of the book, the way you've ever prepared it. So I think you captured it really well. Um, a lot of decisions I made in the book were due to writing style and not due to research, mm -hmm. which, you know, if this had been an academic monograph, I would have made different choices about some of the things that I discussed. Um, I think most academics understand this. Mm. I mean, really, I have received surprise, not, I'm not, not surprising in the sense that I think anybody would is upset with anything I wrote in academia, um, but surprising in the sense about the people who have reached out to me behind the scenes and be like, this is incredible. You know, how much you covered and art, you know, what you have done here. And I know that they may, might disagree with, you know, some of, you know, with some things, not anything really substantial, but like, you know, the Reformation is a minefield of people disagreeing about what's the impact of the Reformation for women. And while everyone would agree that, you know, this emphasis on the godly mother, um, this arises out of the Reformation in the early modern period, there's a lot of opinions on whether, on how this actually impacted, you know. Um, and so with, I waded into that debate and I said, what I want y'all to know is that it impacted evangelical women in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. And this is it, you know, because it gave us only one option. And so this, so I knew that there were going to be some historians that are going to want to put that in broader perspective and are going to want, you know, to consider, and, and that's perfectly fine. You know, those are good conversations to have, but even those scholars have all, you know, they have reached out and told me how how proud they are of what I have done here. And that, you know, that really helps me to, um, to take all of the sort of pushback and criticism that I receive from other areas, because I know that my, my field is standing with me, um, especially a lot of my, um, you know, feminist historian friends who have been fighting these battles against patriarchy for forever. And they are just so, you know, they're just so supportive. And, you know, they'll send me messages like, hang in there. <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's really great seeing that. Um, however, there, there are some criticisms, you know, if I think about what I would do differently, there's a couple of things that I probably would do differently. Um, one of them is, is I did cut a section on race that I really, you know, I tried really hard to incorporate race in this book. Um, it, it goes hand in hand with patriarchy, mm -hmm. but this book was focused on, because of my memoir bit, I was telling a white woman's story in a yeah, white woman's yeah, church. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff with biblical, in fact, biblical womanhood, I would actually argue is a white woman's concept. Um, it was born in white evangelicalism. Now it has, it has moved out in really damaging ways to the black church, to the global church. I mean, we can study what, what has happened to it in China, in Korea. Mm. I mean, there are all sorts of elements to it. So um, I kind of wish that I had, I had originally planned on having another chapter that talked about the global reach of this. Um, it, just, it just couldn't happen for the size of book that we were going for. 
which was really important. So I did have to cut that and I had to cut some of my stuff on race. Um, you know, I probably still would have made that decision, but I might've had a more full footnote somewhere sort of explaining why I made that decision. Um, so, you know, but as I said, good books start conversations that lead yes. to more good books. And so what I'm just really hoping, I'm okay if people are like, you didn't do this. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I didn't. I would love for you to do it. You know, there's room, go do this. So I, I'm okay with that. Um, I wish in my Paul chapter and actually in the third edition, I changed some language uh, because when you talk about Christianity, I firmly believe that God has always liberated women. Yes. I believe that God did this in the, in the Judeo tradition as well as in the Christian tradition. However, when you locate conversations about the liberation of women in Paul, it automatically leads to the present to an assumption that you are condemning Judaism. That's actually not true. Um, it's not what I believe. I think the Judeo, you know, I think the Old Testament is surprisingly liberating for mm -hmm. women, which is the Jewish tradition. But I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to talk about that as much. I didn't get into the Old Testament as much. I mean, really, it was a time decision. So I think maybe I could have been more clear that this is not, that I actually believe Judaism has liberating tendencies. And in fact, you know, if you think about the uh, Paul talking, including women and men in the conversation, like in the household codes, mm -hmm. one of the reasons he does that is because Jewish people met together in the synagogue. You know, women and men met together, you know, in the early, this is actually a Jewish tradition. While you know, we always think about the Jewish, you know, that there's only male priests, but we don't realize that women and men often met together in mixed assemblies. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, I, so I think some of that paved the way for the, the liberation of Christian women. I wish I'd maybe highlighted that a little bit more, mm -hmm. but that's okay too, because that can expand the conversation and people. So those are a couple of changes that maybe I would have made more. Um, I think the criticism that fair people saying you didn't do this. I'm like, yes, you're right. I didn't do that. So, um, but overall, I'm not terribly upset about it. No, that's good. And, you know, I'm, I was going to actually ask you about the race piece, but so I'm glad you actually just yeah. addressed that already. So that was that's an interesting um, dynamic. But I, I think I do. I think I do agree that a lot of this conversation isn't up being white evangelical Christianity, which is um, which is under, you know, for, for many reasons, a good critique um, right now in 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 uh, in general. Um, right. when, when, one of the things I appreciate about the writing style, because um, I wasn't sure you, you see a title, you wonder what it's going to be like to read it. Um, but one of the yeah. things that, that this book isn't about, it's not about a deconstruction at all in the sense of it's not about you losing your faith. Right. And, and in fact, it's actually a wonderful, I mean, especially the very fact, um, I mean, you've probably, well, I'm, I'm sure you've seen what some folks do with Paul. It's like they just basically assert that Paul is um, a patriarch that, that, and that you can cite all kinds of passages. And so we just, we can just ignore him and then ends up undercutting right. biblical authority, which is in, yeah. in, in my view, at some level, that's oftentimes that seems to be the underlying reason to be a complementarian is that that's the only way to hold together yes. biblical inerrancy or right. biblical authority. Mm -hmm. And you essentially don't even play that game. And so a person who's fully devoted to Christ loves the scriptures that read your book and might think, wow, I never saw it like that, but you never attack right. the Bible or any of these characters or suggest they're not exactly. authoritative. So I think that's uh 
that was intentional. That shows your own faith, but, uh, but that's not the, that's not the easiest line to walk either, is it? No, I've gotten criticism from that, <laughs> from, um, from people who, who do not think that Christianity is redeemable. Yeah. They yeah. think that it is so entrenched in patriarchy and that the Bible itself is, I mean, really, you know, people, uh, people who approach the Bible primarily as a historical text and um, that tells faith of a people, but undercut the divine inspiration of it, they approach the text differently than I do. Yeah. And my underlying assumption is that I believe, and I believe the Bible was written through the hands of people, but I believe it is inspired by God, which is why I think we can find those, those threads of, of liberation for people. I mean, I just think it's really remarkable when you look through the Bible, but that is a different perspective from people who um, who who no longer see as much of that authoritativeness within the Bible, and also only look. You know, I often say they look at the glass half empty, and and patriarchy is entrenched in the Bible. That is very true, um, but I think it has more to do with people than with God. And so, you know, yeah. But I've I've received a fair amount of criticism from that end of it. But I haven't really, I don't really feel the need to respond to that criticism because it has nothing to do with the evidence. Right. We actually mostly all agree on the evidence. It has to do with the assumptions behind our, um, behind our premise. And I don't really have any, you know, my assumption is I believe. And so I can't, I can't really answer any other way than that. So I just sort of let those people be and just be like, yeah, you're right. If, I understand where you're coming from and I understand why you see it that way. I just disagree with you. Um, and, you know, and I've just left that because that's about all, that's about all I can say to them. Yeah. Talk, let's, let's talk about the, the, I mean, the obvious key, two key words that um, we need to think about when we're reading through your book, which is the word patriarchy yeah. and you've used it a couple of times and even complementarianism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so again, I think, you know, we hear these words a lot, but when you use both of those words, what do you mean by patriarchy and in, in your mind and how, what do you mean by complementarianism? Yeah, that's great. Um, so patriarchy is the systemic oppression of women. Mm -hmm. It's a structural oppression. Um, it is something, you know, Christians often don't like the term patriarchy. I think part of it is, is because modern uh, Christians, especially in the U.S., we are so individualistic mm -hmm. and we don't think about, we don't think about structural oppression. We don't like it because our story is that we can always pull up our bootstraps and stand up. And, you know, those are the stories we like. We like the stories about the individual who succeeds against all odds. And that's part of the American myth. Yeah. Um, and so when you think about structural oppression, what it says is that there are systemic parts of the world in which we live that keep people from being able to, to be successful, that limit what they can do. Mm -hmm. um, and so in Christians, we don't like to hear this, but it's a historical reality that we have systemic patriarchal and racist oppression that exists really from the beginning of civilization. Mm -hmm. And we can trace this out. Um, and so when we, patriarchy is that women, no matter where they live or what time period they live in, always have less access to resources than men, always have less access to, um, to governing positions, power, if you will, than men, and always have less, um, uh, and always are under 
the authority of male guardians to, you know, to some extent almost. And these are pretty consistent themes that we find throughout history. So that's patriarchy. Complementarianism is a, um, you know, same song, different verse. It is a different verse of patriarchy. Um, patriarchy shapeshifts throughout history. It manifests in different ways. That structural oppression remains. In my book, I tried to explain it like um, I used Virginia Woolf's phrase, a room of her own, and yeah. talked about how sometimes women's rooms are bigger than other times, and, uh, and the room size changes. And so complementarianism is a, the modern Christian room that limits women. And so it's a, it's a manifestation of patriarchy. Um, and so, and, and what I think is interesting is complementarian roots patriarchy, not in structure, not in women's childbearing capacity, um, not in property ownership, which is really the root of most of patriarchy itself. Um, but it roots women's subordination to men in the nature of God. Yeah. And yeah. it says that God, while God created male and female and in the image of God, that women are created with a divinely subordinate role. And in its worst manifestation, this divinely subordinate role mimics the Godhead itself and the role of Jesus. And so that's complementarianism. Um, I got recently got nicked for um, people being upset that I used complementarianism that broadly because they wanted me to define it by their words. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you know, that's what historians do. We look at patterns and we look overarching and that is the, you know, complementarianism is this overarching concept. You know, there's many different forms of it, but the root of it is, is that women are divinely created, that women's divine purpose is to be under male headship. So. No, that's, that, that's, um, that, that's, re that's really, uh, that's really helpful. And this is, I'm, I'm trying to put a question together because like I, the one, the thing I liked about your book, um, again, and I'm I, egalitarian. I think everybody listening to this probably knows I teach at Asbury in the whole, in the whole piece. Right. So it's, so it's, I'm, I'm so it's yeah. like, I have, I really have almost nothing to critique about it, but it's what, what I found interesting though, because, <clears throat> it, it, you know, I, I always say that, you know, like when I talk to somebody on an airplane, I say, what do you do? You know, and I'll say, oh, I'm a professor of biblical studies, which usually nobody wants to talk to me for very long right. after that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so what I started to do just for fun is it's like, well, I, I teach um, I teach the Bible and, you know, and my goal is to make sure that um, nobody oppresses anybody with anything in the scriptures. You know, that, so that, that's what I that's what I try to say. That's 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 what I do. And I try to use a hermeneutic yeah. where I assume that the scriptures always want me to convert to its message and if, at first versus me projecting yes. onto somebody else yes. uh, what the bible what you know like so hey beth let me tell you what the bible means for you it's like well i want to know what it means for me and i want to change my life and then i'll share out of out of that with other people right. so it, it you know and, and you're you know when i read your book it's it's almost like i mean this is that old cliche but it's like um patriarch patriarchy as you under, as we understand it and there's you know i'm sure there's evolutionary reasons that the societies ended up in certain ways right, and I'm, yeah. you know, we don't need to go down you know, evolutionary psychology in this interview but i mean i think that would be an interesting to, i need to find somebody to talk about that i suppose too but yeah. but but it's like um it's kind of like you know you're almost like you're we're fish and we're swimming in water and we don't even know we're in the water and then right. some, someday some fish figures out they're in the water and then it's like hey let's go to a different ocean now so like patriarchy is like the pacific and there's an atlantic and there's a right. caribbean and, and and it seems ironic um and i 
reading your book was really help was really helpful. And I know a little bit about the book, Jesus and John Wayne, though. I've just read reviews. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to look at it. And I know a lot of this stuff at some level, this whole complementarian position, though, obviously it, it has deep roots. It's kind of a post-World War II response at some level. Is it as simple as U.S. sent 15 million guys to fight a war and then they had to come back into society? And so we asked women to be housewives that, so they help these guys get back into culture and uh, recover from the horrors of yeah. war and stuff. I mean, that's a big piece of this whole thing that we don't always think about, right? It is a big piece of it. And it is something that we know for sure um, is a big part of it. I mean, we can just look, this is one of those historical patterns that is really interesting. We can look throughout history and we see this often happens in the aftermath of war when a very you know destructive uh, war, you know, we can think about the, the Roman world. I mean, this is yeah. exactly what happens um, with the family values campaign of the first century. It's not called the family values campaign um, of, of um, Augustus, but I always teach it that way in my class. I used to connect it, you know, versus, and it would connect with students because I mean, that's what it is, it's a family values campaign. And it was to try to, you know, Rome had suffered and its empire had suffered and they were trying to rebuild and you need women to rebuild. And um, and so, I mean, in some ways it it does, it's reduced down to that. You need women to rebuild a society. And so we often find these types of campaigns that encourage women to produce more children and to be in the home. Uh, although that manifests in different types of ways, you know, what does that mean? But, um, but we see this, this is a pattern and it happens after World War II. It happens in the aftermath of World War II. And you think about really World War II is just an extension of World War I. Yeah, so yeah. we have this, you know, from 1917 until the 1940s, you know, for the US, um, you know, 1914 earlier, but anyway, but from the really the bulk of the 20th century is this massive war that completely unsettles and shakes up society. And, um, and then people are trying to reorder it. I mean, we, we see this happen in Europe with uh, the aftermath of the Black Death and society gets completely shaken up and reordered. And then we start seeing these weird laws coming in that try to get like get people in their place. Like, you know, lower class people can't wear clothes of a certain kind. You know, this is a stupid law. Why right. do they do this? Because they're trying to reorder society. And we also start seeing laws coming about against women living alone which we haven't really seen before in the medieval world. I mean, they're trying to reorder society. Yes, this is what the US is doing. We're trying to reorder society. Um, so it is rooted in that. That's not the whole right, story right, of what's right. going on, but that's the big piece of it. And um, it's, which again is, you know, really the heart of my argument is that these limitations placed on women are placed on women by our society, not by God. Now, and then the church struggles at different times, whether it's going to subvert that or in some levels now the church has become ironically or certain parts of the church um, has ironically become defenders of something that was more cultural than it was um, biblical. And again, the great thing that right. I think that your job did is you, you or your, that your book did was show the different ways that, in fact, some of the. The, the, the Bible is actually pretty radical. It's um it's almost like that God must be crazy movie where the bottle drops out of the sky and, and they don't know <laughs> how to process it. Yeah, I know it's hilarious, right? But but that's what the Bible's like. But then instead, um, you know, 
the, the patriarchy stuff is it misses the that the the, the radical nature of the Bible because it misses the Coke bottle dropping out of heaven pieces. Instead, yes. it, it 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 hides the fact that the Bible says radical things for the time, and we almost have to go back and let's live like we're in the Iron Age again um, in the church. And that's a, a massive problem when you know, like person like yourself has a PhD and you can't even teach a <laughs> you can't teach. I shouldn't Sunday laugh because class. it's a reality. A Sunday school class, and you know, we hear stories oh. like this um, all, all the time. Um, yeah, it is. Can, I, I want to. I, I want to be careful for time. I can talk to you for a long time. Oh, I, I, I want to yeah. ask you like two kind of bigger questions, and then I have some quick ones at the Perfectly end. So, fine. the one of the interesting things you talked about patterns. One of the and and that's one of the things I learned. And I, when I was reading your book, was um, the the interesting piece on sex and I actually mean sexuality and with, the, mm -hmm. with different, with the different, with, with the different sex or different genders yeah. that it, it, like there's a phases where the women are the, the temptress, the women are the out of control yeah. libido folks. And then it shifts in this modern period now, you know, so like if I was 500 years ago, it's not my, it's not me. It's all the women. Cause they're the temptresses, but now it's me now in 2021, I have the out of control libido and I'm a man. Right. And so it, it's so that I found that fascinating that the, that the perception shifted around that. Can, can you say something about that and maybe what the implications yeah. are? Yeah, no. So um, in the medieval world, there was a, you know, as I said, I've seen some people post out that you know, my book is arguing that medieval women were, you know, were freer. And I'm always like, that's not actually what I said, No, no. but I understand why they walk away. You know, it's, it's, it's all new to them and they're always positive about it, but I'm like, that's not actually what I said. Um, what I said was, is that in the medieval world, the reason we limited women was different than mm -hmm. the way we limit women today. And in the medieval world, women were connected. It's both out of that um, Greco uh, Roman worldview that women, there's something wrong with women's bodies. I mean, mm -hmm. this, and it's not just the Greco-Roman world that thinks this too. It's just, this is where my argument started, but um, that there's something wrong with women's bodies, that women are deformed men mm -hmm. and, um, and that they are, and I mean, this is also interesting. I, I don't want to get into this too much, um, but in some ways in the medieval world, there was a belief that women's bodies, you know, that there was a continuum. And there's a lot of historical conversation about what this actually means and all sorts of scholars weigh in this debate. But what we do know is that they did believe that women's bodies could become male bodies, hmm. you know, you know, in sort of that. And this is sort of this idea why women can exercise authority if they act more like a man and yeah. take on these male characteristics. It can take on the authority of a man, but they have to give up these feminine characteristics, um, childbirth mothering, all these things, they have to leave that behind. So it comes with a cost, but it enables them to, to do this. Um, but the problem is the reason that they have to become more like men to get closer to God is because women's bodies are flawed. Mm -hmm. And um, in the Christian tradition, this is often associated with Eve, that the sin of Eve condemned humanity and women's bodies are corrupt. They're the temptresses, they're the ones who told Adam those words, you know, I mean, it's kind of, but it's, it's this idea that women are corrupt and at nature, you know, evil. Um, and so, and that men's bodies have a greater capacity to be like God than women's bodies do. So this is still a very flawed understanding. Um, but what we see begin to happen after the Reformation era is where we really have this teaching that women and men are both made 
equally in the image of God. We have this emphasis really put on women as also being in the image of God and that women and men can approach God equally. Um, and so, but so women's bodies are restored in some sense, uh, broad brush, women's bodies are restored. Um, but then, you know, this is the idea with, with sexuality, you still have to control women's bodies because right. that controls childbirth, that controls production, affairs, all of this sort of stuff. And so then you have to protect women um, so that you can keep this, you know, protect them so that you can, you essentially, you know, it's to control, it's to control women's bodies. Mm -hmm. And so then we have this idea developed that it is the male body. And part of this also comes with um, the scientific revolution that emphasizes that men are these aggressors and that they're built to be, you know, more manfully and stronger and all of this emphasis on how women's bodies are made smaller than men's bodies, which is not always true. Right. Um, but you know, I mean, you know, you know, I have friends that are male that are significantly smaller than I, you know, it's just right, funny right. how you, you think about it. But um, so it's, but it comes with this myth that men are more aggressive and with aggression comes sexual aggression. Mm -hmm. And so, and you have to protect women who are the weaker sex. Um, it's really funny. The medieval world doesn't use the word weaker sex all that much when it talks about women. I mean, they could because they often believe that, but it's actually a product of the English Bible translation. And we start seeing weaker sex explode and it fits with the scientific, with the scientific you know, revolution about women's bodies. Um, and so women start being identified as the weaker sex and they have to be protected and sheltered and 19th century, this comes to fruition with what we call sort of Victorian ideals. Yeah. And in many ways, the conservative evangelical church is still living in the Victorian world of the 19th century. So that was a quick, no, may have been good. more than you wanted, but it was, yeah. So that's no, kind I of how we got there. Yeah, I was trying to think about these because I know, the you know, the one thing is it's, um, you know, it's um, it's always hard, like that fish in the water kind of analogy. It's it's always easy to kind of look back and see stuff, but it's always hard to see like what water am I in or what oxygen yes, am I breathing yes. right now? And and, and I think your yes. book, I mean, that, that's why I love big, um, big yeah. swaths of history because you can see that yeah. and you can see how things change. And so, you know, at some level, like when you talk about Victorianism, the, the danger of the church at any point is we have a living tradition. We have a deep faith. We have obviously yes. doctrinal statements and stuff that, that are, that are rooted yet we still have to live into a modern period. And so the danger is, basically sanctifying some moment like you know and I, and I don't mean any disparaging thing about what i'm about to say but like i grew up in ohio and um yeah. one of my favorite things about going back to ohio is the county that's right below i'm from akron ohio but the county right below akron oh, yeah. is one of the largest amish counties in the united yeah. states and so i always love to go down and you know see people and riding with horses and buggies and delicious right. food but basically that tradition and i have no i'm not going to disparage that at all but at some level they just basically froze you know, the 17th century lifestyle and then mm -hmm. continue it on. And you can look at that and you can say, boy, that seems kind of strange. But at the same time, if we're really honest, a lot of what we do is exactly like that. We just, it doesn't look crazy right. enough that we don't yes. see it yet. You're exactly right. We, we freeze. And, and this is part of this nostalgia, you know, to, and we always do this nostalgia, like it was better before. Um, it's never better before. It's just different. Right, right, and right. So, yeah. 
no, that's great. That's a perfect way to describe it. So what, what do you make of, uh, you know, some of the most staunch defenders of complementarianism sometimes are women. And like you mentioned a couple, I yeah. think um, Tim Keller's wife, and I, and I can't yeah. remember some of the other folks, even John Piper's wife, I think wrote some stuff back in the day on one of, maybe I might be wrong about that, but it's like, so what do you make of, um, of women that want to defend, say, complementarianism and patriarchy, um, and they, they find it personally helpful. I mean, what's right. what's the goal of like? I mean, I don't know. And we're not criticizing people for what if they prefer right. something, but what what do you make of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I know a lot of these women. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are still my friends. Yeah. And um, I I thought about it a lot, you know, and I I think about it to me, like, why did I believe this? Um, and I think part of it has to do with identity. Mm. Um, we are women in from very early ages in these are really, you know, conditioned, uh, conditions, not a right. It's not like being brainwashed, but there's an emphasis put on our significance as women as distinct from men and that we need to preserve that. And that that's what makes us, you know, in a world that really does look down on women, God lifted women up because of what we are, because of yes. what we can, you know, because of our bodies. And so there's a lot of fear that if you let that go, that if you argue that women can do the same jobs as men, that you are minimizing that gender distinctiveness. And so I think it, it cuts to the heart of women's identities. And I get that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it also has to do with the circumstances of many, many women. I mean, they have made choices in their lives that have married them to this lifestyle. And they can't really extricate themselves from that. And so am, should I demand of them to under to pull the rug out of their entire life over something that's not gospel? No, I'm not going to do that. You know, um, that's that's not my point. My point is it's not gospel. <laughs> that's good. And my point is it's not gospel. And most of these women are actually on board with that. They don't think it's gospel either. They, uh, they think yeah. it is a better manifestation of the Bible, but they don't think it's gospel. Um, some exceptions to that are people like Dorothy Patterson, who I don't know what her game is. I really don't. I'm looking for um, one of my colleagues at Baylor, Elizabeth Flowers, is works on women like Dorothy Patterson, and I hope she figures it out someday. You know, what, what do, I don't know what her game is. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, I think Elizabeth Elliot there's been a lot of work on Elizabeth Elliot and she was a woman who was traumatized mm -hmm. early in her life. Um, you know, she was raised on these things. She had a really strange courtship um, with her to be husband with Jim. And I mean, it was really strange. And then she's like married to him for like a second. Yeah, it's true. And she it? loses, and she loses him. And has a daughter and like her whole life anyway and so much of what she does is almost looking back to a mythical marriage yeah, yeah. that she didn't that she never had but she wants her daughter to like vicariously have this mythical marriage that she never was able to have so i think a lot of this is a traumatized woman um trying to make sense of what happened to her using the vocabulary and what she has been taught. Now, I mean, I should not psychoanalyze people. I'm a historian. So, you know, people can, uh, I, I wanna be very sympathetic to her. She had a really hard life. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but that's looking at what she's done and reading her stuff. That's, I mean, she truly believed this. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with her identity. You know, this is where she put her identity and it all shattered in a moment. And instead of losing her faith, she rebuilt that identity on sort of this mythical idea of marriage. Yeah. That's, I'll stop psychoanalyzing. <laughs> no, that, no, that's, but no, that's just really interesting. Cause I mean, I want to, my last big question was just really, when you look at your last chapter, you talk about women being set free. And I, I just wonder what, what does that look like? And I want to ask it in two different ways. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, obviously I'm, you know, I'm your friendly neighborhood white guy here, grew up in Ohio and the whole thing. And so <laughs> yeah. when I read, when I, when I think about these things, um, you know, and by the way, also I have, um, I have, I have two, two biological daughters, three stepdaughters. So I'm, I'm like a professional You're, father of yes. daughters here. And, uh, you know, and, you know, like in my own daughters, um, I have two that are going to go, um, my, my, my one daughter wants to be a doctor uh, with a medical doctor and the other one wants to be a clinical psychologist. They're both going for advanced degrees. So it's like, you know, so I, I see the world that my daughters yeah. are going to, and I try to raise them to be, um, to, to, to be everything that God created them to be essentially, right. um, you know, yeah. and I know that they're going to, you know, they're going to be in relationships and they're going to have to figure out how to work all the, the comp because it's complicated now. It's easy. If it you is. just go patriarchy, it's make it, make it easy, but, um, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's more complicated. So what does freedom look like? What would it look like if women were really free in the church? And then also, um, cause I don't see it as a lose for men. What's in it for men if women are freer. So maybe Gosh. think about it, both of those. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I will tell you when I wrote that final chapter in our plan that I had presented to Brazos, I was going to write a chapter called remaking biblical womanhood. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I thought that I don't want to say that anymore because I think biblical womanhood is, this is, this is not a concept I want to support in any sort of way. Because I don't think we see God calling us to do certain things because of our sex. I think we see God using people where they are to, to do his work, to, do, to, to spread the gospel. And um, so, I mean, gender matters, but it doesn't matter as much as I think we think it have, you know, does. I think what matters more is that we believe in Jesus and we are Christians. So... Um, so I got to the end and I didn't really, and so I kind of just had this, I wrote, I wrote most of that chapter in one sitting, really, truly, um, you know, I pulled on some of the research that I had intentionally meant to put into the rethinking, um, remake, remaking chapter. And, you know, I have a whole series of questions I ask at the end. And, um, and really that was me just saying, what if we did this? Yeah. What if we did this? And I didn't leave answers because I don't know what yet it'll look like. Um, but I just wanted people to think of me. It's like, really, what if we did this? And I've been really surprised by the, the outcome of that chapter. Um, women have really taken, and men too, have taken to that chapter. And I get messages all the time just saying, oh my gosh, you know, you've given the gospel back to me. You know, I, I was so, you know, people all the time, they felt so weighted down by all these expectations that people told them they had to do, even men. You know, I think about my poor husband. Um, he was carrying these heavy burdens about what people told him he was supposed to be to be a godly man. Yeah. And the, they, I mean, he carried as many burdens as I carried. Um, and what I think, what by, by decentering 
what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman and recentering what does it mean for me to be faithful to what God has asked me to do yeah frees us yes because it's no longer about what other people think of us it's about what God has called us to do and we just do that work and I know that's overly simplified I know there's all sorts of things that come in but it also frees us because you know there are so many men who are not natural born leaders um they are much better I mean you know their families would do much better with their wives leading Bible studies if they all want to sit down. And I very rarely have found a, a family where those types of Bible studies all together really work well. Right, right, right. I don't right. know. They didn't work in my family growing up. They don't really work in, you know, I'm, we're a pastor's family household, but I found that individual conversations with our kids and encouraging them and putting them, connecting them with other adults who encourage them and talk with them about their faith is much more important than us trying to sit down as a family and do sort of these, um, you know, forced devotionals or something, you know, that usually just, creates kids that are bored. And I, I don't know. So it seems to me that we keep trying to force both women and men into roles that they don't fit in. That's and that good. causes stress. And that causes, yeah. that causes us to, um, that causes frustration, that causes when we felt that causes us to feel like failures all the time. Uh, I mean, that's what Mark Driscoll was doing to his flock. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a church of shaming people. Yeah to be something other than what God had called them to be. Yeah. As and, soon as you give, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's fine. It's destructive. Yeah. So, yeah. No. Yeah. As soon as you start like, you know, just, you know, uh, and folks should listen to that whole CT uh, podcast on Mars Hill. It's just so yeah. fascinating. It's out right now. I'll, part, I'll just stick that in the notes since we mentioned that, because it's, it's just really fascinating. But it's obviously like all those systems, you, you're that specific on stuff. It may work for somebody, but it's not going to work right. for everybody and certain yeah. kinds of men, certain kind of women. I loved, like, I thought it was funny. I don't know if you did this on purpose, just based on your answer. I noticed, and again, I, I, I had to read your book fast, but I noticed, yeah. I think at least several times you talked about mowing the grass. I think that was in your book. <laughs> and that, that made me laugh but that's what you're talking about in a sense because it's like you know i'm nothing i mean i'm i'd be happy well i live in a townhouse so i don't have to mow ever again i just have right. somebody else does it for me but you know i used to mow the grass and i would think geez i wish my wife would mow the grass that's awesome because but that's like that's kind of a play on traditional gender yeah. roles i don't know if you did that it on is. purpose or was that on purpose that you put that oh. in there or is that just true i mean it's i mean i know it's true, true but that, that was just kind of fun that kind of a subtle um. signal about whoever's best at something, just do that. And is that yep. kind of what the whole point of that illustration was? Or yeah. was it just, <laughs> it was, it was both. And um, yeah. it was true. It was the moment that we had that conversation, but it is also something that has been true about our marriage. Yeah. Uh, you know, my husband and I are both very strong individualists and um, we both, you know, there are some, you know, my motto in my marriage is if I can do something, why am I asking my husband to do it? You know, that's good. So, um, so I'm a good cook. My husband's a terrible cook. Um, he's gotten a little bit better, but he's not good at it. I hate doing dishes. He loves, he does, he does things like that. Well, he does all our laundry because he's really good at it. He folds. I never used to fold my laundry and he folds it beautifully. Um, and you know, he, I mean, he, he does a lot of traditional, I guess what you would consider traditional masculine things do, but he doesn't do them because he's, thinks he's supposed to, he does them because he does them. Yes. And that's sort of the same with me. Um, I like mowing the lawn uh, because it gives me an immediate gratification. 
Yes. You know, those nice, neat rows. Um, it was also a way to sort of accomplish outdoor activity with something that was useful because I'm always, I'm just one of those people where I'm always like, well, this isn't useful. I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, I'm like, my grandmother was like that. I'm kind of like her where I only want to do useful things. And mowing the lawn combines exercise and immediate gratification. It's true. So I like it. My husband hates it. Uh, So, uh, so I always, I just always did that task. Well, I love, yeah. I, I just love that being in the book. To me, you know, if I was going to answer your own question and, and it's oversimplistic, but I just always think it's Paul has that wonderful body language yeah. where you just, yeah. it's basically about unique talents. And if we can get everybody yeah. on the planet and let's assume they're all Christians, but yeah. if everybody on the planet just simply did the thing that they were really good at most of the time, right. we'd have an awesome world to live in. And we ought to just model oh, that in the gosh. church and not just limit people by Yes. their biology basically no i mean no that's it i mean we have people in the church doing jobs that they are not called to do right and it causes problems and it also it causes frustration it causes burnout yeah, um, yeah. we get burned out the least when we are doing what we are gifted to do yeah i i, I just fundamentally agree with that yeah. and, I, and i love that and again i want to thank you for the book i just if, if oh, could you well, just you. let me ask you two really fast questions these are the ones i like to yeah. ask all my guests um like actually it's three but the third one's really easy like the first one is like you know you've been under just right in the book I, you know i follow your twitter account told you i know that you've taken some criticism <laughs> but so like what yeah. what how do you um what are your rhythms? And you don't have to be super specific, but like what keeps you grounded and how do you feel yourself? I mean, you're here smiling, you know, and I've read some of the things that people have said and you're sort of laughing and smiling. So like what, I mean, I know it's your faith, but like what, what, what do you do from a spiritual formation perspective to be able to, for you to be as, you know, as kind as you're able to be, to be able to hold space right. and, uh, you know, do your work, be a wonderful mother, be a great wife, be a great professor. And, you know, and, and so what, what, how do you, what fuels you? What do your rhythms look like? You know, I think part of it is, is that um, I'm, well, my faith is very strong. I'm also surrounded by people who support what I'm doing and who are, uh, you know, I have friends who, who contact me sort of regularly and, and I'm naturally an optimistic person. So, you know, I'll kind of go down where I'll be like, everything's falling apart. Right, right. And then my husband comes home and is like, well, you knew it would happen. It's okay. We'll just get, you know, it's fine. And so it, and so I get back up and I'm like, okay, it's fine. Um, so I, I kind of am naturally like that anyway, I think, which has probably helped with this mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, but I also, this is not my life. Yeah, that's good. I am a um, professor, a dean. Um, I live with undergraduates for faculty and residents. So I don't actually have to mow the lawn anymore. Um, but that's my life. Yeah, it's awesome. So this is not all that I do. That's so good. And um, I think that helps a lot. Um, another thing is, is I know what my mission is. I know why I wrote this book. I did not write this book for fame. I did not write this book to get attention. I did not write this book to make money. I mean, as academics, I don't think we ever try to write books to make money because it just doesn't occur to us that you could actually make money for books. <laughs> That's right. That's get, you, you, usually, you usually get a hamburger or something with your royalty <laughs> check, right? <laughs> we, joke, we joke about it. We're like, oh, we can go out to dinner tonight with, you know, my royalty check for the past three years. Um, so, you know, that helps me too, because I know why I wrote this book. I yeah. wrote this book to help women. It's so good. And it's, I think it's working. Yeah. And so that always helps me bounce back, um, I think. And, and 
you know, as I said, and then also my faith is just really, I teach Sunday school every week. We're going through the book of Acts. I love that. It's so fun. Um, that keeps me, you know, because I see what God does through people and I'm excited that, you know, God can change people and God works through people. And that's amazing to me. Okay. And, um, and that, that keeps me going. Good. And besides the scriptures, what are just, again, this is the impossible question, especially if somebody like yourself has read a million books, but like, if you're going to yeah. pick two or three books that really help to shape you spiritually, so not even necessarily academically, but spiritually, other than yeah. the Bible, what, what were a couple books that have been really influential in your life? Would you yeah. say? No, that's easy. Um, Dorothy okay. L. Sayers, Dorothy L. Sayers, huge influence on my life. Um, I've been reading her since I was a teenager. Yeah, and, you know, some things have become more significant over time from her. But, you know, I, I love her essays. She has beautiful essays that she has written and her plays. And she was a magnificent playwright. Um, and then, of course, also her mystery series. That's where I got into Dorothy L. Sayers was with her mysteries. And Gaudy Knight is a deep, deep book that deals with the heart of what I was doing in the making of biblical womanhood. It's about what is your job? What is your job? That is the heart of Gaudy Knight. What is a woman's job? And essentially what Dorothy L. Sayers, you know, she has several moments throughout this. And part of it too is like, what do you do with women who are born with both hearts and brain? And, um, and what, you know, what are they, what are you called to do? And her answer is, you do what God calls you to do. And it doesn't really matter what people say you should do. You do what God calls you to do. And that's it. That's my working sort of idea. I mean, it very much was shaped, I think, a lot by um, you know, that Dorothy L. Sayers' writings have come more and more up in the forefront. I, I realize how they have shaped me. And I realize how much I agree with a lot of what she's written. So I would say that she is like a, a number one um, person who really has influenced me. She was also a medieval scholar, okay, which cool. I love yeah, because yeah. medieval medieval sources appear in her text. And I'm like, oh, I was there. I read that source. You know, I, I know what you're talking about. And so I love that too about, about her. Um, but along with that, you know, some of the other perhaps writings that have deeply, you know, I, I am... As much as I think the 19th century damaged our modern world quite a bit, I actually love 19th century writing. Mm -hmm. quite a, I love it. And so I am a huge like Elizabeth Gaskell um, fan. And um, I love, you know, in fact, some of my comfort books are, um, are North and South. And I love North and South because it shows how different, how one, I love North and South because it shows how culture shapes people. And how what we think is, you know, innately, even in a small place like England, a tiny place. Yeah. And people living on opposite ends of England are vastly different, not because of anything nature, but because of the cultures that have shaped them. Yeah, that's good. And they can learn to overcome those. I mean, I love that about North and South. Um, and the 19th century was grappling with a lot of these questions and like nature versus nurture. I mean, that was a big one in the, in the wake of um, Darwinianism and et cetera. So uh, you see this in some of their texts. Um, I also love Wilkie Collins. Wilkie Collins makes me laugh hysterically. 
So I read a lot of Wilkie Collins. So anyway, so that I could go on and on. I'm a book person. Oh, that's good. That's good. Person. No, so thank those you. Are, those are some. And, and, and if people want to interact with you, um, is there a great yeah. place online that you like people to go to if they want to check out your stuff? Well, I'm most common. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you know, for better or for worse, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I try to keep a good spirit on Twitter. I mostly am successful. I'm not always successful, uh, but I quickly bounce back when I'm not successful. So, you know, it's been a struggle living life in the open on social media is is hard. Yeah. And I found the best way to do it is just to be yourself and not worry about what other people say. And um, recently, use, I used to just mute people and I have finally started blocking people. I'm just like, whatever, I'm not going to put up with, you know, and so I've started blocking people lately and it, it makes life a lot better. No, it's, that's, it's good. I mean, that's, 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 um, I, yeah. I, so, I think. so Twitter, Twitter is easy. Um, I, I'm always Beth Allison Barr. So you can find me any, you know, Twitter, uh, Facebook, um, Instagram, um, as well as website. Uh, but the place that I am most often present is Twitter. Okay. All right. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you for your generous time. Yeah. I didn't mean to take as much of your time, but this has been no, a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, uh, Beth. And I want to thank you again. I know it's not easy writing a book and it was like you, this book, you, you almost called to write the book out of your circumstances. Right. And, I, and I just think that you've done a, a great job. I'm just grateful for thank the witness you. that you're doing. And I'm super grateful that you put a book together that's really constructive and not really de destructive or deconstructive. Um, so I just appreciate that. And uh, yeah. it's been wonderful to meet you today. Yes, it's been nice to meet you. Um, I would tell you that I'm going to be at Asbury, but you're in Florida, but I'm actually coming to speak at chapel. Oh. Um, in January. Well, there's some folks that are probably up in Wilmore close to it that are listening. So they'll check that out. That'll be in. Yeah. So that'll be awesome for yeah. you to go up there and we can watch it on a live stream. So I'll probably be able to check right. that out. And, yeah. and friends, everybody who's listening right now, thank you for listening all the way to the end of this uh, episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'll have everything in the, the show notes. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be a voice of hope in the world that needs it. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you share it with friends or others in your network? And would you consider leaving a review so to help other people find this episode? All of the resources are in the show notes, so I invite you to check those out. And I want to also say, if you're interested in learning about Centering Prayer, my book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life will be released in September of 2021. You can get it already on Amazon. And if you would like information about Centering Prayer and some help getting started, you can also sign up for information directly with me. Go to centeringprayerbook.com. All that information is also in the show notes. I will see you next time.